Hey, this episode of Team Human was recorded in a special audio environment called High Fidelity. And if you want the full effect, you don't have to, but if you want the full effect of this place, you should put on some headphones or, or earphones or something. So I'll give you a second to find your ear pod things or whatever and unwind the cable or get the Bluetooth on them working or whatever and get them in your ears then uh, then we'll start. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine, a revival meeting for the human soul, a collective enterprise of matter and energy, a celebration of the quirky liminal substrate we all share, and a dance of sound meant to surround you with love and light. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, a small assortment of my best friends from the early cyberdelic era, Nick Phillip, Annie Pio, Jody Radzik, and Are You Serious? We'll be looking back on the magical explosion at the intersection of art and technology in the early 1990s rave scene, and looking forward to the next era of shared consciousness. Oh yes, it's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. So, my friend, Philip Rosedale, he made this... uh, this space that I want to introduce you to. It's called High Fidelity, and it's a it's Philip's second great uh, contribution to uh, the the world of things cyber. He was the the founder co founder of Second Life, which was this weird, wonderful uh, virtual world playground where people got characters and all that. And one of the most interesting things about the whole experience for him was developing some immersive or what's known as a spatial audio. And you may have noticed it in the very opening of the show, but I was playing with this little space and we're in it right now. You see, what what happens is you can move around in this place and create not just kind of left-right stereo, but I can come from like all the way behind you. I can just walk around in kind of a little circle around you as I speak. And so there could be one person over here while we're talking, and there could be another person over here, and there could be another person over here, or we can just sort of move around. I can come around. Hi, I'm on your side. Hi, it's me. It's me. Can you feel me? Can you? Oh, oh, you're moving away. Oh, now you're. I'm getting very close to you. I'm getting very, very, very close. You see? Isn't that nice? Now I'm right kind of in your ear over here. And now I'm just coming right around in front of you, and I'm right in your ear over there and kind of behind you. Oh, the man is behind you. And then back in front or, or on the side here, and, and, and I'll come back around in front. So it's a little bit a little bit more normal like, like, like we're used to being with each other. But when I got in this space and kind of spoke with him for a while, we spent a couple of hours talking about about just everything. It it really reminded me, uh, uh, physically, really, of my very first internet experiences. That that experience of kind of of rave and psychedelia and fantasy role playing. It's a very kind of immersive, electric Kool Aid acid test like you know, immersion in an experiment. And it was, it was, 
physical. You know, when you went to one of these things, it was it was physical, and you play with virtual reality and have all these dancing people and around you, and you can smell them and taste them and see them and flashing lights. But it was also just that that feeling of immersion in the weird among the weird you know people who who played with the liminal and lucid dreaming and talking about strange things people who liked movies like altered states and liquid sky and the slacker and the stalker uh, uh, skateboarders and surfers extreme sports people and, and goths and pierced and scarified uh, people who liked uh, 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 Brian Eno's ambient music and played with the I Ching and the tarot or shamanism or the, the archaic revival. Uh, it, it reminded me of, of, of the global sensibility and Gaian consciousness or the ideas of Willem Reich and Rudolf Steiner, the literature of James Joyce or Borges, the, the, the ideas of Bucky Fuller or David Bohm or Ralph Abraham and Rupert Sheldrake, the music of the Grateful Dead or Kraftwerk, the, the ideas of, of Carolyn Estes and Barbara Marks Hubbard, the practices of Starhawk and Castaneda, the poetry of William Burroughs and our, our dearly departed City Lights founder, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And I get that feeling in here. It's that feeling of mingling in the crowd after a reading at City Lights where just being one of the people who showed up means you know. It's that kind of, hey, hey, I am, are you? That that confidence of being among friends, not necessarily like-minded friends, but, but open-hearted friends, you know? So this experience, to me, it, it stood in such stark contrast to spaces say nothing against them but like clubhouse you know the latest social media pyramid scheme where you can join a conversation about how to make money trading non-fungible tokens it's like the worst year of south by southwest you know room after room of tech startups competing to get noticed and to get investment before they pop you know but but playing in here you know it feels less less wired magazine than than midnight gospel it's like a memory jolt that the the vibe is still here it's accessible even though our lives well my life anyway it feels so distant from the the pulsing beam of the cultural renaissance and it got me wondering about those good old days as well as the possibility for reinstilling the net with heart and awe and wonder and soul, you know, building environments of intimacy and possibility, creating and sharing experiences that, that, that open the doors of perception and inspire new relationships to, to what is and what can be. You know, I'm, I'm starting to do some shared experiences for Team Human subscribers right in here. It's nothing elaborate yet, but, but but they're fun, and we'll keep announcing them through Patreon and in the Discord channel. And it's really a nice way to just find and feel the others, you know, especially in these in these socially uh, challenged times. 
But but here's the conversation that started it all. My little rave reunion with Nick Phillip, a graphic artist and sportswear designer who was uh, responsible for anarchic adjustment sportswear back in the 90s and, and the Imaginary Foundation more recently. Um, Annie Pio, the, the DJ and artist and now a, a, a well-known wellness expert. Jody Bradzik, a rave promoter and graphic designer. He's the guy that actually first introduced me to electronic dance music. And Are You Serious, one of my great teachers, a cybernetic ringleader and founding editor of Mondo 2000 magazine. Hi, how are you doing? I'm yeah. good. How are you? Yeah, yeah I'm hanging it's in there. It's been like a long time. I've got a comfortable spot on the couch. Yeah, I see yeah. that. Yeah, yeah I know you nice. do. It's beautiful. So, hey. So, hi, everybody. Welcome to this strange little space. Uh, uh, why don't everybody just say say um, who you are starting with? Uh, me, hey, this is Douglas. I'm, I'm here uh, uh, hosting Team Human. And to my left is Nick. Nick, so why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, hello, I'm Nick, Nick Phillip, and uh, I'm in San Francisco. Cool. And are you? Hi, I'm Are You Serious? And that's all I have to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> and Annie? I've got nothing to say, and I'm saying it. John Cage. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Annie Pio, and I'm in Ventura County, sort of near Los Angeles, Southern California. Hello. I'm Jody Radzik, and I'm in Northwest Phoenix. We're in this space called High Fidelity that my friend Philip Rosedale, who made Second Life, he made this place, mm -hmm. this surround audio environment. And I thought it'd be fun to do a podcast from in here so that people could experience all the people around them. And then it seemed like something about this space reminded me of really the first rave I ever went to, or rave type party, which was Jody, you took me to um, Osmosis in 1992 at, where was that, 650? So you're the one who's Street? guilty, Jody. <laughs> nah. it, that, that was, right, Howard, was it, it was at the DV8. I don't remember what the right, address was, the but DV8. it was at the yeah. DV8, yeah. And it was this club, and it made me think that wouldn't it be kind of fun to do a uh, uh, not a entirely retro, but to bring some of the people from the original early cyberdelic world. Somehow, when I experienced this space, just sort of immersive audio, um, right now, it reminded me of the same feeling I had at my first rave or going online for the first time. And it was like this other vibe that I'd almost forgotten about of the early kind of psychedelic fantasy role-playing fractal rave internet, <laughs> you know? And I thought, why not get some of the people who remember that and actually made that happen together in this space and talk about uh, uh, some of what happened then, what we remembered, what worked, and and whether we, we've, we've lost the wave, have we lost the beam, or have we carried the beam till now? And, uh, you know, what are the kids doing with it? What's EDM? Uh, Is it sold out? Uh, <laughs> and, and sort of, you know, to look at, look at then and now and where are things going? 
So first, I want to thank you, Jody. You were the one. Uh, this guy, uh, George Gleason, introduced me to you because uh, mm. I was starting that book, Siberia. And he was like, you got to meet this guy, Jody. He's going to take you places and show you things. And <laughs> by, by the I, I, way, George Gleason was an office worker at Mondo 2000. Oh my gosh, he was probably doing phone phone hacking. He was. He was. He set up our phone system so that everybody could uh, be linked up. He was great. Wow, I uh, didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, good old George. It's been a long time since since yeah. I talked to George. Yeah. Although it's terrific, right? And then I remember I I brought uh, uh, Walter Kern up to the the, the Mondo Two Thousand house, and uh, we had some crazy times in there too. Are you? And I learned about everything from, you know, the, the Timothy Leary's connection to William Gibson to William Burroughs to uh, all the other wonderful uh, topics and Dirk and Sandy and and Gracie and Zarkov and. <laughs> <laughs> And the you real weirdos. <laughs> yeah. The OG weirdos. I, yeah, Extropians. Yeah. yeah. Remember them? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. I don't, it's hard. This is a tricky conversation to do, right? Because there's five of us. And I've never done that. And I'm trying to think of what would we do if we were just in this room together with no agenda. I mean, I, I would love to be able to describe for people who weren't there what the scene was like the sense of possibility in 91 92 and maybe i don't know are you since you were collecting people and ideas since you know before rave even started do you have a, a way kind of of describing what the what the the kind of the social atmosphere was in the early 90s and and when did you notice the the kind of the arrival of the the kind of the, the rave aesthetic and the rave the, the early cyberdelic stuff um, yeah, well, I mean, I was trying to push this sense that something new was under the sun, probably starting in 1984, um, but it really started to feel like it was coalescing around 89 or 90, and it kind of started with uh, somebody like Michael Gosney throwing digital bean, people gathering, it wasn't, it wasn't a rave scene then, but it was, uh, it was a physical scene. It was a, a material scene uh, in which people were delighted to uh, get together. And I, I think the whole thing was the feeling that there was something new under the sun. And that's where the cyber came in. I mean, it was cyber, in a sense, the cyber was an excuse for people to feel like uh, we were moving out of the Reagan-Bush era and there was something new under the sun and there was a reason to celebrate and a possibility to celebrate. Um, so, I mean, that, it just sort of went from there, and I, I heard from, uh, I mean, I'd heard about raves going back to like 87 or 88, Goa, Goa Gill sent me a cassette, which I listened to once and handed off to, <laughs> <Go> a, <Gil. laughs> I listened to, I listened I to it Goa once, and, story. yeah, I listened to it once and said it, and gave it to our art director, who was really into it, you know, I, it didn't really strike me at the time, um, Mark You gave Healy, it to Bart? You gave it to Bart? No, no, it was uh, Adam Zakin at the oh, time. Okay. This is like 1987, 88. Mark Healy really was the one who uh, kind of pushed me to become aware of it. And, you know, he, he wrote a really good piece about rave culture in Mondo, I remember. Yeah. It was really, and, really good. And he was determined to come out here in San Francisco and make something happen. And so he I sure think did. We were like the first he place sure he did. came to. 
he and he and uh, what's her name, Earth Girl. Uh, Lisa, yeah, Lisa. Earth Girl. Yeah, they showed up at the Mondo office, you know, at like five thirty in the evening on a weekday. Everybody's tired, and you know, you know, it's kind of a normal office sometimes during the weekday there, and we're all kind of tired and having our drinks and just pursuing the success of a magazine. And these guys came in all full of vibrant energy and excitement and I was like oh yeah okay yeah you want to borrow the phone go ahead <laughs> <laughs> well you're calling England okay <laughs> but then they set up Toontown in Big Heart City and uh, yeah. right and basically brought and it was interesting an interesting kind of ping pong that was happening between you know Detroit techno and well I guess craft work to Detroit techno back to England where it got like crunchy and almost mm -hmm. like deadheady disco mm -hmm. or something going on and then came back to San Francisco and mixed again with the San Francisco cyber scene and became the kind of cyberdelic mondo influenced uh, toontown raves I felt like London though because I was in London like 91 like 90-91. I lived there for a year and it was right when at least I started becoming aware of the raves out in the fields and stuff. And what was interesting was that um, we would all go like after our parties to trade, which is a gay club. And it would open, I mean, like we'd get out at like noon the next day <laughs> and it was more like diva music. You know, I can't right. really think of an example, but it was like that diva like, well, that was know. like Colossus in San Francisco. That's where we all ended up on a Saturday night. And uh, it was gay, but basically all the straight, hardcore raver people would end up there too. That's where I met Malachi for the first time. He was working there. Oh, wow. But it was that same kind of a vibe, after hours gay club, basically. Mm -hmm. But that was, to me, one of the most striking things about the rave scene in San Francisco was there was a complete open uh, interpenetration to not make a pun, between the oh. gay cultures and the, <laughs> the straight cultures, you know, mm -hmm. even the, the kind of harder sort of, you know, more urban influenced were, were cool with the gay people. It was, it was actually, to me, it was monumental. It was one of the most important things about it. The fact yeah. that you could just be who you were yeah, and, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and kind of go for it with who you were too, right? Mm -hmm. You didn't have to just kind of mm -hmm. be normal. You, you could be way out there you and and find success and love for mm -hmm, it so mm -hmm. it, it was first time i was in a social setting where it was like go for it dude uh everyone else was in in whichever ways they were prompted so it it changed the nightclub scene as far because you know i've been going to the das club and the kind of industrial goth clubs before rave in san francisco and you know there was still a bit of a kind of elitist uh, you, know, you know, sort of like money had something to do with it vibe. And uh, the race scene obliterated that. Yeah, yeah. No judgment. Also the yeah. wrong drugs. Yeah. You yeah, know, no yeah, yeah, too. it was yeah. probably the drugs. Yeah. And ecstasy. It, yeah. It was a Coke, a wealthy person's Coke slick, $20 cover charge, $8 drinks, yuppie, mm -hmm. something in the club scene. And then rape. Yep. So much of it was like either three dollars or free, right? <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like, what is this free? What do you mean free? Well, twenty dollars was was getting to the outrageous level for a ticket to a rave mm -hmm. back yeah. then. Well, you mean you wouldn't really see them, you know, uh, uh, 
right? originally. I mean, if you went to uh, it was you'd get a, a map point in a on a little exactly. piece of paper and just go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In a hidden underground location. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like a commercial club. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think in San Francisco there was some map points parties. You know, I went to a couple. I probably haven't gone to all of them by any means, but it it wasn't as prominent in San Francisco as I think it was in L.A. Like it was kind of a bigger thing in L.A. the map point thing, and in San Francisco, people went and got a warehouse, and you just kind of mm-hmm. knew where it was, and that's where you ended up. Yeah. I have the impression that in Great Britain it was really almost the size of the hippie movement in the late sixties and what happened here in the USA wasn't quite the uh, effervescence that it was in in Britain. No, because I think it was probably only in San Francisco almost. And Jody, you're saying it was in LA, but I think, I don't know, it's just different because in San Francisco, everything's, you can walk everywhere, right? So you can bump into people on the street. There's more of a connectedness. In LA, you have to travel in car. And and that's what people do. You yeah. know, they'd have desert raves basically out in San Bernardino or, or there's a, a place uh, in San Bernardino that Insomniac uses a lot. They mm-hmm. they're putting on raves back then in the in the early 90s there. There was a party Gilligan's Island in Auckland. That was probably the first really big parties. I think it was, you know, on a boat. It was a boat party out to Catalina or maybe it was on the beach somewhere. Oh, I didn't nice. go, but. But yeah, L.A.'s had a huge kind of booming scene, but it was different than San Francisco because for the reasons you mentioned, everything was all over the place, right? You have Pomona, which is way over here, and Santa Monica, which is way over there. There's parties in both those places. But it was, I I always thought the L.A. scene was different in that it was a little more kind of street, where San Francisco was a little more woo. And yeah. that was always the impression uh-huh. I had. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, from an aesthetic standpoint, like the graphics at the time in streetwear and flyer design and stuff like that, there was a definitely a distinction. I think uh, LA was more pop and it had, you know, like knockoffs of like tied packets like Rick Klotz from Jive, his whole brand based on, you know, repurposing logos of corporations and lots of like uh cartoon you know characters from tv shows and stuff like that that there was an aesthetic difference i think here in san francisco at least there the kind of techno spirituality thing there was an aesthetic component to it as well right for sure like old ilm people going to these things and so forth there was there was like a boomer hippie techie kind of Thing going on mixing with yeah. the raves with the yeah. uh, VR setups and stuff like mm-hmm. that. He, it was a lot of enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, interesting. Then, there was this tech thread, right? There was the tech thread. I remember that. Remember the there was a Big Heart City rave where Timothy Leary came and this guy Brian Hughes had brought a VR rig from Intel and yep. everyone got to try mm-hmm. it. And I remember Timothy Leary was in there, everybody screaming, watching him like demo this thing. It was there was that whole there was that whole thread, but there was this other thread. I guess Mark Healy from from you know from I guess he wrote for like ID magazine and things like that yeah. back then. When he came and was doing the the early Toon Towns and and some of the the Big Heart City stuff that that you took me to, Jody, it seemed more um, spiritual and in, in intent. 
I remember you you said this thing. I, it ended up becoming the chapter of uh, the title of a chapter in Siberia, where you where you said, you know, these parties are making the golden rule trendy. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> I, I I do, and and actually, honestly, that that thread is in the rave scene today with these big, huge festivals. The kids, it, it's basically codified under Plur. Plur is still really big. The kids all know what Plur is. And uh, in case our audience doesn't, what is Plur? <laughs> Plur stands for peace, love, unity, and respect. And it's it's like the the ethos of rave. And if you can do Plur, if you can be Plurful, um, <laughs> you're good. You know, you're in there. And it doesn't matter what you wear. It doesn't really matter what you look like. Mm -hmm. Just mm -hmm. do whatever you want to do. But be plur about it. So it really it transcends politics. It it basically eliminates politics. It eliminates politics. Peace, love, unity, respect. I mean that covers it. You can't be. An so I, th it, there's a, a little misunderstanding about plur, as far as I could see. Uh, if you look on Wikipedia, it's um, Frankie Bones is credited as coming up with it. But right. I did a little bit of digging. And actually, it was Laura Degas, Brian Bellendorf's wife. Right, right. She was yeah. SF Raves queen. Yeah, well, she was actually um, NE Raves, she was. I guess she was on the oh. East Coast, but yeah. And they were the ones who disseminated the plur thing first. Right. And Frankie Bones had done Peace, uh, Love and Understanding, and, and it was Laura, after a conversation with Brian, that stuck the respect on Wow. The reason the reason why I bring it up is if you look on Wikipedia under uh, Peace Love, uh, you look under uh, Plur, there's uh, it credits Frankie Bones as coming up with it, and it, it was meant to be there was some fight at a party that he was doing, and he stopped the music and, and famously said, "If you guys don't have any more peace, love, and understanding, I'm going to beat your ass," and that just <laughs> seemed, you know, a little kind of contradictory to the whole thing. But um, I, knew, bit, yeah. I knew that there was an SF component to that because uh, it sort of was kind of codified in like 93, but we, we that that whole kind of, you know, 60s hippie thing was a part of the, the rave scene in San Francisco way before that, certainly. And, yeah. Um, um, yeah, and I wonder if, if some of that came, it felt in some ways like we were trying to retrieve the... Uh, the the vibe and purpose of the the electric Kool-Aid acid tests totally yeah, that, that, yeah, I was absolutely. so inspired by that book back then because in those the acid tests were basically they were using you know oil immersion projections and music and lights and stuff to try to somehow engineer human uh, transformation right they were raves one hundred percent you know straight up just done in the sixties with different music I I think part of the um the kind of spiritual hippie thing that um, Mark brought with him when he came from England and, and worked with Diana to start Toontown was um, he was kind of part of the Fraser Clark Zippy movement and Martin Scooby and those guys had kind of really galvanized that philosophy, you know, and the, the, which later then turned into the kind of traveler movement in, in the UK racing. So I think that that was part of it as well. So you kind of have these different pieces that were really, really special to San Francisco. You had the gay, the gay scene, as you were saying, Jody, that was really 
totally sexually liberated already you've been dancing to house music and taking ecstasy for a number of years and the paradise garage was really big on the east coast and then you had the british dj inv invasion and you had mark healy and the influence of the zippies plus you had gainer G garth yana marky the wicked crew like a huge huge amount of a dozen really good British DJs, a number of them involved with the Tonka sound system in Brighton yep. coming. And then you had Silicon Valley and people bringing VR rigs and you had the, the 60s psychedelic culture, right? So San Francisco already was kind of primed. There was a lot of the conditions for something really special to emerge that was its own flavor of rave culture that really was unique compared to anywhere else in the world because there weren't all these things together at any one point. And I think that, that was a big part of what made it special. Right. But then the weird thing was, and, and I, maybe I, I overestimate the importance of this, this moment or this turn, but it felt like, you know, in 1993, when Wired magazine came out, I mean, originally my, my beef with Wired was that they, they came hunting for Mondo 2000's turf. You know, Mondo had contextualized the, the, digital movement as part of this larger, wonderful cultural awakening of which rave and fantasy roping and spirituality and human potential and, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, space migration, intelligence increase, life extension, you know, it was all part of the same smart thing. drugs. Smart drugs, right. And, and quantum physics and dancing woolly masters and Carlos <laughs> Castaneda. It was all kind of part of, and surfer culture, you know, that, that the, those strains that you were bringing in, Nick. And, and then Wired came and kind of reframed this whole thing as business. And south of market, instead of being where you'd find a Toontown or a big hard city, it became where you do your startup. Mm -hmm. And it's like we kind of welcomed them in. It was friendly enough to start. You're the tech making people but then it became this giant multi-zillion dollar thing and and i, I, I don't know it, it it felt like there was a, that we were kind of pushed off the map in a certain way i mean is that is that am i overstating it well i i mean i think in terms of raves in san francisco that you know they they only were energized by that i mean not to say there weren't Downsides to what Wire did, I agree with you about Mondo and and Morphs too a little bit, but um, yeah, you're talking about Morphs outposts on the uh, digital frontier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a great, great little uh, uh, sort of tech gamey culture magazine. He's the guy yeah. who did that. Came up with the word screenagers. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was Doug, right? Right. I think it was yeah, Doug Millison. Who yeah, but um, I have a brain. Yeah, just to play devil's advocate here. I mean, yeah. I I worked quite closely with Wired for some time. I I, did, I was kind of a founding contributor there. Did uh, some stuff in the first issue, and I feel that there were a, a number of people there that really were kind of from our camp. You oh know? yeah. I, I, oh, I mean, absolutely. Eugene Mosier. I mean, he you know he was riding a motorbike and had a leather jacket and. Was very very yeah. kind of cyberpunky guy. Mark Frauenfelder. Yeah, Mark Frauenfelder. Um, I, Kevin, I used Kevin to go Kelly. to their office actually and say yeah. hi to people. Yeah. Yeah, I mean Kevin Kelly. I mean, yeah. and then what Joey Joey Ito did with you know Wired in Japan. I I I think there were maybe some factions within it, um, but 
I, I know what you mean, Doug. I think the like they definitely did embody or part of that. It did embody what turned into the kind of investment culture VC kind of thing that has well, made technology I, I, go bad now. <laughs> I think that the the sort of uh, corporate uh, heroes as brave road warrior kind of thing was was the text of wired and subculture and counterculture was sort of the the subtext and i think within the content of the magazine it was uh it was pushed towards the fringe but as a presence in san francisco wired people were you know there as much as uh, mondo people were and the actual culture of the magazine inside the magazine was probably as Nick was just saying, uh, very much part of part of the uh, rave scene and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that you could, in some ways, characterize uh, technology culture as a kind of or as a bit of a an, a battle between your kind of Steve Jobs cyber hippie side and then your kind of Ayn Rand, you know, libertarian side. And and it seems like maybe that cyber libertarian side is really what has taken over what we understand has become big tech now and there were probably seeds of both both of those you know in within wired but maybe yeah just the more more money side took over right well because so much money was invested i mean yeah these buildings all changed you know and i know the head of wired lewis Rossetto, was a pretty strident libertarian and yeah he you know, was. it still yeah, is yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And it leaned things, I guess, in that way. And then money came in and then tech became, you know, the Shoshana Zuboff story, right? You know, the surveillance capitalism and extraction. And uh, and the, the, the only part of it that makes me wonder if something we were doing might have been wrong is, you know, in my later work, I've come to see, like, if we are using technology, then it's pro-human, right? This whole programmer be programmed idea. But if technology is being used on us, then I've got a problem. And mm -hmm. I look back at Rave and think, oh, what were we doing? Okay, come into our giant Petri dish. We're going to flash lights. We're going to take music at 120 beats per second. We're going to give you these drugs. <laughs> Yeah, but we weren't tracking it, though. That's the difference. We weren't making a record of it and then tr learning how to manipulate people by analyzing that record of it. We didn't do that. That came after. That's true. I mean, we did I mean, talk was, later, uh, did the party work. I mean... It was pretty go with, it was pretty go with the flow in, in the way that Jody says, but also in the way that Doug says it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't a critical mind-based movement that uh, uh, was going to offer a sharp critique of culture. It was go with the flow. It felt right. Um, and so I, that cuts in, in both directions, I think. Right. When you say both directions, you mean, you mean in other words, by not being sort of in some ways self-consciously uh, uh, political or, or realizing the, the w what does it really mean to read to take back a public space for a party you know what is a reclamation of public space reclamation of our entertainment uh uh you know having uh, uh, autonomy over over my state of consciousness if you don't realize the political implications of that then in some ways it's harder to to kind of retain the the implicit power that you gain 
Mm. Um, I mean, one of the things with, with Mondo, I mean, Mondo may have been more punk than Raver right from the start, uh, but uh, we just had so many different strands. We were, we were yeah. generalists. So we had cyberpunk, really dark dystopian visions right from the start, as well as... A uh, little industrial. You know, people, uh, people really uh, were excited about nanotechnology, creating utopia, and virtual reality, creating utopia, and every form of criticism. And we had punk rockers as well as ravers. And uh, it was a real melange. We didn't really have much of a commitment to, to any one of the strands. Really big shift. I know I'm kind of fast forwarding a lot, but was was the Snowden reveal, you know, like I, for me, that right. was when, you know, I had my doubts before, but that really was, I don't know, that, that, that really shifted it in my mind. That was a really big moment. Yeah, well, yeah, certainly for the public to realize, I mean, it was weird for me. The big moment was nine 11, you know, it's like we were moving towards openness, openness, openness in the net and decentralized and power on the periphery. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, with all this power on the periphery, we could take a couple of box cutters and take over an airplane and crash it into your big buildings. And it was like, oh, shoot. And I felt like right after that is when they justified Palantir. And, you know, when Google gets the OK to, OK, you can surveil everybody to high heaven as long as you give us a back door. And, you know, that's when we moved into surveillance culture. Yeah. You know, and Snowden's the one that found out about it. He's the one who documented it, you know, that, yes, this, is, <laughs> this isn't just something you suspect. This is real. And we, we did suspect it the whole time, right, Nick? I mean, we used to talk yeah, about yeah, it all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that, what was that a room, the AT&T room or something there was on Harrison yep. Street or something? Oh, yeah. yeah, there was, I mean, that was, uh, I, that was the thing. I mean, I, I think you're right. We did know this was going on, but it, it was... It was when Snowden made his his reveal. It was like you like you could no longer sort of suspend disbelief. I think that that was at the point where it's like, wow, this really is a potential architecture of authoritarianism here. Yeah, and 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 are you? You know, even at at Mondo, the whole time there was a kind of a, a an oscillation between you know d delightfully hedonistic utopianism and paranoia about surveillance and government and all that wasn't there yeah. it was even before 9-11 i mean oh yeah it was, it was bipolar from from the start <laughs> <laughs> uh, utterly bipolar yeah right yeah. and <laughs> not just the people but the scene and the drugs yeah, they yeah. all tend towards that i mean you know i i always talk about how you know genesis Origin once told me the only good trip is a bad trip you know <laughs> wow <laughs> there's that paranoid you know that 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 paranoid energy is, is part of what fuels you to find a more utopian positive place yeah i mean susan sontag has this rap about science fiction in the in the 70s and and how it's this oscillation between the world is ending and the world is beginning anew mm. and it's mm -hmm. interesting yeah and that's that's kind of the hinge that uh we tend to operate on, or, or we have operated on. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that there's much to operate on at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and why do you mean? I mean, do you, do you have a, a a a hopeless feeling about things right now? I think pretty much. I mean, I, I think that I think maybe Nick brought this up, or it might have been Mark Healy. That we, we've had a a social singularity, that uh, you have two billion minds 
online. Uh, it's an unprecedented situation uh, for brain. human beings. You didn't even have that many human beings when I, were, when I was born, hmm. or you barely had that many human beings when I was born. Now they all have the means of communication with one another, and they're, they're carrying whatever uh, faulty thoughts, myself included, uh, bad memes, you know, toxic attitudes and so forth as well as whatever love they have on, online. They're firing together, so they're yeah, wiring and, together. Right, right. And that, but that, there's no, uh, there's, as with the idea of the technological singularity, which is not something that has happened, uh, there's no predicting where this goes. There's no, it's its own thing. It's, it's beyond our control utterly. I yep. mean, I oh. used to think oh, the rave. <laughs> well, I used to think the rave was going to be our practice round for this. That we yeah. were training ourselves for group organism. You know, how do so you collaborate chaos. with five thousand yeah. people in one room, sweating at yeah. one time, yeah. and that would somehow translate to, mm -hmm. you know, this this shared psychic space of the net? But it kind of didn't. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe I. You can only you know, do I, what it. What it could do, but yeah. cancel culture. I've said this before. Cancel culture is almost like a behavioral manifestation of the global brain, because people are making decisions about the behavior of others, deciding that that behavior is inappropriate for a free, forward-thinking society, and basically saying, "No, we're not going to have you anymore." And uh, th there is this sort of group consciousness, sort of ad hoc kind of decision that gets made based on what people believe is right and what we need to do moving forward. And, and it, it, to me, it seems like there's something significant about it. And, and it's, it's almost like seeing the global brain wake up a little bit. Right. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the global brain is waking up, but it's just like, like it's still like it's in the early stages of the global brain. The brain yeah, is still it's the still comatose, system. kind of. You know, yeah. Right. It's like look, we haven't got the higher brain functions yet. Right. You know, right. Maybe we're still on the the stem. You know, yeah. that's just not developed enough. Yeah. Right. And then, of course, because you're not developed enough, you're like, oh, I don't want to share a global brain with this one. Cancel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get out of my neuron. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, but that's how the brain works, though, right? I mean, I'm not an expert, but I think that the neurons in the brain, there's that saying, you know, neurons that fire together wire together. And so yeah. and the other there is this called. kind of yeah. ideological <laughs> organization that's happening. Like on Twitter, you can see it. There's a, somebody that did some work for IFTF, Mark Smith. He has a program called Node XL. And with that program, he can make these beautiful visualizations of what's happening on Twitter. Actually, any social media uh, company I think he can work with. But, it, it, you know, he can kind of show what the conservative people are saying and what the liberal people are saying about the same topic, about the same, you know, subject. And um, there is this kind of, like, like, all people, ideologies create these these networks, basically, within the whole global brain cyberspace. There are these ideological networks now, and, and not a lot of bridging between the two. And I guess that's one of the things that we could call bad about what the Internet has done. 
but Nick and I were talking about it the other night. It, it maybe it needed to happen, you know, maybe, yeah. or, or like our, you says, there's nothing we can do about it. That is what's happening. But, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully at a point, it's not going to result in all out civil war. No, I yeah. mean, part of it also is, you know, when, and, and Andy's work is sort of making me think about it is, is, Everything that happens online is necessarily so ideological. It's so disembodied, you know. It's not. It's not real, you know. So we end up with these, you know. I don't know what this Trump person or that Trump person believes, you know. But when we're actually outside and the outside shoveling snow, it's like I get along with all these people, you know. So I mean, I'm wondering because Annie, you went from. I mean, I know you did. You still do. You still do sound, but you've gone deep into the body, you know, both into the way the body functions. You can bench press more than your body weight, which is friggin' insane. I mean, you know, you, you know, you do, you do kind of physical coaching. I mean, do you think part of our problem now is sort of socially or as a society is that we're kind of not embodied enough? Because rave was embodied. If it was anything, it was, it was in the body. And it still is. It still is. Although there is this social media cameras out aspect right. of it like well i say was because i don't go anymore i guess but rave right. but rave yeah but the, when i was at rave i was more embodied than when i'm late at night online right, <laughs> put right. it that way that's like interesting point you just made me think of some yeah maybe perhaps that's why i've gone completely offline if you haven't noticed i don't do any social media you know like none i haven't probably for about four years now you're all um, about social media when you're totally. promoting your food business well i had one of the first blogs before wordpress right i was the Mm. first youtube cooking show i mean Mm -hmm. i was right there up in the front instagram everything i let it all go because i just i just couldn't take it anymore and i think it's all the stuff we're talking about and i wanted to just be completely analog things i buy i want them to be analog now it's horrible it's like i've gone completely the other direction but yeah doug like i do personal training now where i see where i used to see people one-on-one and in the physicality like physical like doing the training and working with their body and stuff but what's ironic is with covid it's all virtual now Mm. (laughs) but i didn't want to be on the computer anymore I didn't want to do like technical. I wanted to do analog, like hands on. But um, perhaps that is, yeah, I guess that is what pushed me out of that. I sort of um, got tired of what all of that was becoming. But back in the day, which the last time I'll say that tonight, uh, you back in the day, except for then, we, and when I was writing Siberia, I, I felt like what tied all of our worlds together and what, what you folks were the the kind of progenitors of was a designer reality that you were helping you know helping our society contend with the fact that we were moving into something much more like an acid trip a much more hallucinatory reality that what the reason why intel and apple and all these companies needed to hire psychedelics people to be their programmers is because psychedelics people were the only ones comfortable with designing reality with hallucinating things into existence Mm -hmm. and contending with that. Mm -hmm. And that was some of the power of this Mm -hmm. era was it really felt like we were going to get to move into, you know, more of a Terrence McKenna, Jaron Lanier envisioned world of, of manifesting things almost Mm -hmm. in the, in an occult Robert Anton Wilson, you know, uh, everything is possible. uh, Create your own universe, you know, choose your own adventure landscape. I mean, do you feel 
that promise is alive? Do, do you feel that, that reality is still uh, open source or do you feel like it's kind of getting locked down and that there's less, less possible than there was? I, I, you know, I, I, I think there's always possibility. I think that we were maybe a little bit deluded back then. Hmm. We're younger. Myself, I was a little younger. bit deluded. <laughs> yeah, right. A, a lot little younger. Less experience, <laughs> but um, I think the possibility is still there for sure. There I was. Think, I um, mean, one thing that was fundamentally different was, you know, in the in the early nineties, like pre-web web. I mean, it was it was about a decentralized network. I mean, when Tim Barners Lee conceptualized the web. It was as a decentralized network. And what we have now is a reality where, um, you know, it's four or five big tech companies that pretty much control everything. Right. And, mm -hmm. and that is a fundamental difference. That's not just us being naive, you know, and giddy, which we were, of course, and I was probably one of the worst ones, you know. <laughs> but I, I think the, um, yeah, we have the facility to create our own realities or our uh, Twitter feeds or whatever it is. And there's all kinds of amazing tools to do something. The creative tools are more powerful and more available than they've ever been. I mean, what you can do in Photoshop now compared to what we had to slug through in the early 90s oh making God. rayflies. I mean, it's unbelievable, right? However, for hours and hours. Mm. <laughs> hours right, and right. hours and hours. At, at the Kinkos because your own machine wouldn't even do it. Yep. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the service bureau, the era of the service bureau, right? Yeah. Outputting film. Yeah. But I mean, I think the the ability to create one's own realities and um, express oneself in some aspects is is easier and more available than it ever was. Yeah, However, I agree. there is this kind of chokehold that the big tech companies have, mm -hmm. where they have like meta control of the whole mm -hmm. system the whole platform right yeah, they, do, um, yeah. they can delete your page they can delete exactly your yeah yeah and mm -hmm. sometimes it can right. seem pretty arbitrary mm -hmm. right or know? not accept your app into the store you know right mm -hmm. right yeah. exactly you know and i mean yeah. i i think we i i was just reading this thing today and um this thing about tech lash and they were saying tech is bad b-a-a-d-d -D. Yeah. big anti-competitive addictive and destructive to democracy <laughs> yeah yeah there is a a fundamental difference in in the way in which our relate our relationship to technology is mediated by these this kind of monopolistic group of companies and it's i know i know loads of people that work at those companies and they really are good people i mean a lot of them are and once the, they go in they really think the companies are really good too yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> once I, I, they go in, they really I, they drink the Kool Aid. Yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but you know, if it's it, a good company, they treat you well. You, you end up liking them. I that, that's oh, my experience. You now get with Cliff bars all day. <laughs> yeah, Jackie with sugar. But it is true, right? Because in the beginning, at least for me, with my blog and everything, I always knew. I was like, I do not want to build a platform on Facebook. I need to make sure to use that to then direct traffic back to my website, where I then get their email and create my own email list. Right. But now everyone's just doing everything on Instagram at the will of Instagram. Right. Because they could just shut down your account. Yeah. Uh, and, and with yeah. Facebook, if, if, if yeah, you have a Facebook. Facebook, you have to 
pay Facebook to reach your people that have liked your page. I when yeah. I realized that. So I was like, oh, my that God, they all signed yes. up to follow me, and now I have to pay to reach them. Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. kind of cool. Wow, Marshall, I didn't know about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's how it is. Ma- wow. Marshall McLuhan talks about this, this concept of reversal. Mm-hmm. where um, new media forms, when they first became available and obs- made obsolete the previous one, they would be tools of democratization and self-expression. But then once they get to a certain point of adoption, they hit what he called a reversal point, and mm. then they then become instruments of control. And I, I just think we've fully hit mm. that reversal point, yeah. and yeah. that's where we are now doesn't mean that we're always going to be here you know i i think the the awareness of 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 where we are now mm-hmm. is probably the most important thing that we have to enable us to move into and evolve into something else but mm-hmm. i think it is it is pretty clear that where we were in the 90s and all of our utopian aspirations um and where we've got now uh, you know, we, we, we've, we've ended up in a very different place from what I think we, we visualized. No matter, no matter what we're trying to do uh, for ourselves and with our small autonomous groups or, or whatever, there's the weather, you know, there's, there's fire and water. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, there, there's the there, global there, mimetic landscape. There's problems with, with resources, real material, physical resources that uh, we weren't looking at in the 1990s we thought we were going to we were going to beat that scarcity with technology right information technology but actual production technology like nanotechnology and so forth none of that stuff is scaled um so anything that we try to do i mean the the only good thing i can say about what i was talking about earlier that we we've been we're in a social singularity where we can't really predict what kind of politics and attitudes will emerge from two billion people being uh, sharing their minds all at the same time. We, you know, I say we can't know what will happen, but maybe that's the positive aspect of it is that, well, yeah, we can't know what will happen. So, you know, maybe, maybe there's a slim hope in the fact that we, that we can't know right now. Are, are you happen. trust the plan? Ouch! Yeah, no, it's a cruel and brutal, uh, cruel and brutal mutation. That's the way the way uh, the virus is pushing everybody into virtuality. That could be some like weird cosmic thing going on. Uh, totally. I kind of want to ask, are you one, one last question for my oh, own well. sake? You know, you, you talk about how to blind spot in some ways for the material reality. And you oh. hear people talking about, you know, 3D printers are going to make everything free or whatever. It's, yeah, but where are you going to get the goop <laughs> for the thing? You know, you're still, yeah. you know, sending little, you know, African children into, land, into, into mines to get the rare earth metals for your friggin' 3D printer that you're going to replace yeah. every two years. But you did so much work in the sort of extropian sort of future future stuff with different magazines and all it do you believe that there is a a like a some kind of a nano cold fusion super duper future where we figure out perpetual energy or how to just grow you know corn on rocks and out of nanobots or is that my my problem is always with the word believe um (laughs) so 
I don't believe. I, I think it's a very slim possibility and getting slimmer all the time. But uh, uh, certainly peculiar things might happen with technology. It might, it might shock us. It might bring about post-scarcity yet. It's, it's, it's a slim possibility, but it could be the only possibility. So we could wish for it. Yeah. <laughs> or just start using less, you know? So yeah. let's stop mining Bitcoin and, and get to real work. Yeah. Well, if enough people did that, that's, that's the, the problem. The problem with consciousness revolution, the problem with political awareness and so forth is that it, it doesn't scale. It doesn't, it doesn't reach majority. Uh, mm. Right, that's what you mentioned, the, the temporary autonomous zone in the Hakim Bay, right? That was kind yeah. of a reference to that, right? Yeah. Right. There are these little, like when you're in the ocean, you know, there are these little warm pockets that you find occasionally, mm -hmm. and then... <laughs> yeah, that was find... always the thing that struck me a little bit about Burning Man, was that people would rhapsodize about how amazing Burning Man was, and, you know, how it was this life-changing experience. But I think perhaps that was just a function of the fact that because it was one week a year. It was it was a temporary autonomous zone. It was scaled. Yeah. And and right. you know, it works in that context, but when you scale it to whole civilization all the Burning time, Man is things. the bridge between the old rave scene and the new rave scene. But is the Burning old... Man still working though? In that it way? It will be, I think. No, yeah. I mean what I'm saying is in general, as it's gotten bigger. When's the, the last time I went it was like twelve thousand people. Now it's like a hundred, hundred fifty. I know it's like going to South by Southwest or yeah. something. Yeah. So I think it has become more commercial now. Things aren't just traded with no money. I think that that essence has been lost, right? Years ago. Know. Well, I've, yeah. People I've... hire these like Sherpas, Burning Man Sherpas, to yes, take them out do. there in an RV. They pay to go to a camp that has a chef that will provide them with cooked yeah, food. Security. And it's security. <laughs> It's, well, if yeah. you're the CEO of Google, you know, you kind of need a, you need your Blackwater guys around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Blackwater at Burning Man. <laughs> That's my next graphic novel. Yeah. <laughs> Black Rock. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, Annie, are you, Nick, Jody, thanks so much for coming into this strange little space. And and both reminiscing and 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 sharing your your prognostications on our possible futures. It's been hoping for the best. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Yes, hoping for the best. Yeah. So it's, good to hear everyone's voices. Yeah, it was yeah. fun hearing yeah. everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Great you, setting. We, great audio setting. Yeah, great yeah, setting. This really, is really yeah. Really yeah. Is, yeah. Let's give our little listeners a treat. Maybe we can go circle around this. Hello. Uh, Everybody Hello. Talking. Hello. 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 Am I going to figure this out? Uh oh. Here we go. Hello. Around and around. Hey, hey, hey. Right. Hello. 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 You're in the rain. I'm stuck. Hello. All right. Well, thank you. Oh, and, and say, hey, oh, I'm, everyone say, say, we're on Team Human. We're on Team Human. Team Human. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Right. You've been on a special spatial audio episode of Team Human. 
You can support this show and join me and the others in the Team Human Audio Lounge by subscribing to the show. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. <laughs>